0: worked so far, but we're not out
1: yet. I wanna know what you're
0: thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind.
1: Hailing frequencies open and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and to paraphrase Shakespeare, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have pieces of a batleth thrust into them. I'm joined on this episode by Keith DeCandido. Keith is an author, editor, podcaster, musician, and writer of over 50 tie-in novels and numerous short fictions and novellas for properties like Star Trek, Stargate, Doctor Who, Farscape, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Marvel Comics, Dungeons & Dragons, and World of Warcraft. Keith is also the creator of his own original worlds, like his Precinct series, SCPD, his Cassie Zukov short stories, and he has a new book, the first of the Bram Gold Chronicles, A Furnace Sealed, which is coming out this year. He's also a regular contributor to Tor.com, where he's been re-watching and reviewing Star Trek series since 2011. Keith, welcome to the show. Well, good to be here. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for coming on. Uh, your permission to come aboard is granted. Today we'll be talking about tacking into the wind the 22nd episode of the seventh season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, an hour of television that is itself mere hours away from the end of the series and the conclusion of The Dominion War, a story arc that developed over several years and became the main focus of the show by the series' end. Critics and fans alike have praised the series for its long-form storytelling and the maturation it brought to the universe of Star Trek and sci-fi TV, but also worthy of admiration is the writer's ability to plan, plot, and bring to fruition a sweeping multi-season plotline without losing track of the story and character-based touches of Trek's procedural roots, and we'll definitely talk about that a little later in the show. But first, Keith, I want to know about your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan?
0: Um, I, it's pretty much my parents' fault. Um, <laughs> I I was, uh, my parents watched Star Trek when it first aired uh, on NBC in the late 60s, and um, I grew up watching it in reruns. Um, I was born in, in April of 1969, so okay. the show was basically okay. done by the time I was born. Yeah. Um, but, um, I grew up in New York city, still live here. And, um, uh, one of the local stations, uh, channel 11, which is now the CW affiliate, but at the time it was an independent station and they were the ones who ran the reruns of star Trek, uh, in the early seventies, every weeknight at six o'clock. And that was how we spent our, our weeknights. It's like, we, yeah, you know, my parents would come home from work. I'd come home from school. Um, we'd watch star Trek and then we'd eat dinner. That was, sort of <laughs> that was the routine. So I grew up with star Trek. Um, I and and it wasn't just watching the reruns I read the James Blush adaptations I started reading the comic books in high school when uh DC uh picked up the license uh I saw I believe I saw all the movies in first run in the theater um you know I I I was and, and you know was was eager an eager devourer of uh, next generation when it debuted in in 87 and um and then in the late 90s uh, my affiliation became a bit more professional. That was when um, I sold both a novel to Simon and & Trister and a comic book to Wildstorm. That was, I was, actually, mine was one of the first uh, comic books that Wildstorm did when they picked up the license. Sure. 99. Uh, a next-generation miniseries called Perchance to Dream. And um, I also uh, helped develop the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series for Simon & Trister in 2000. And then wound up, uh, editing as well as right, editing that series once it, uh, launched into a full on monthly series in 2001. Sure. And then, um, uh, and I also contributed to it as a writer as well. And I've, I've written more than a dozen novels, uh, tons of novellas and a bunch of short stories and other comic books and such. Um, my most recent Trek work, fiction work was uh, The Klingon Art of War in, in 2014, which is a coffee table book. And more recently, I've been, I've been doing more uh, more on the nonfiction side. Uh, I rewatched uh, First Next Generation, and then Deep Space Nine, and then the original series for Tor.com, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. And currently, I'm reviewing uh, each episode of Star Trek Discovery as it comes out for, for Tor as well. Oh, nice.
1: Uh, you've been involved uh, rewatching these shows for tour, and like, are there any specific insights you've uncovered by going back through and watching these shows uh, episodes? Episode?
0: Yes, actually, there's been there's been a number of interesting things that that, have, that I've realized uh, and that I've tried to to discuss. One, in particular, with the original series, there's a lot of myths and preconceptions about the original series that are basically wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh and 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 in particular there's a lot of assumptions about the characters and about what star trek is about that really come more from the movies than the tv show yeah uh in particular um i i it was i i joked that it was my hope that anybody reading the rewatch if they came out of it with nothing else they came out of it with the fact that jim kirk is in fact not a maverick who disobeys orders right um, that that was something that was completely an artifact of the movies and mostly an artifact of star trek 3 where it was a unique circumstance yeah um and and just in general there were there were certain things i noticed upon rewatching all of them that i didn't you know binge watching it like that that i didn't really notice while watching it on a weekly basis when it first aired um uh in particular like with next generation for example i i came out of it with a much greater appreciation of jonathan Frakes as an actor yeah uh, me as it, well he, yeah he 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 did some remarkable stuff on the show that I don't think he got nearly enough credit for. Um, and I also came out of it really disliking the character of Jordy Laforge a lot.
1: <laughs> that one, I got that
0: one too. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and also that there were a lot of, there were a lot of things with deep space nine to, to, get to what we're actually talking about. Um, there were, a, there were a lot of things they tried on the show that didn't actually work. The thing is that were trying so many different things. Yeah. Uh, And a lot of it did, the vast majority of it did work, but there were a lot that it's one of the things that I think is admirable about, uh, excuse me, admirable about the show generally is that it was very ambitious and there were a lot of things they tried to do and not all of it entirely worked. Right. Um, You know, although I think they they do deserve credit for trying and also for the number of times things they tried that did succeed. Um, So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And in a a lot of ways, um, as we're talking about today, the idea of the Dominion War story arc and just sort of that overarching uh, plot line helped to, I think, focus the show a lot from its early roots where they're just trying whatever, like move along home or they're just kind of throwing things at the wall in this new environment that's not a ship that's heading places every week.
0: One of the things that I particularly like about Tacking Into the Wind uh, is that not only is it is it part of that specific Dominion War storyline that DS9 was doing but it was also the culmination of um plot lines of, of just a general backstory plot line that had gone back all the way back to Next Generation. Oh certainly. Uh, back to the 3rd season of Next Generation in the case of the Klingon story and the 5th season of uh, Next Generation in terms of the Bajoran Cardassian storyline. Sure. Um you know, this was stuff – it was the culmination of, of, of a whole bunch of stories over about, about a 10-year period. Yeah. Um, the, the, and that that was one of the things that I love about the episode in particular. Uh,
1: in addition to your many contributions to Trek literature, you've also edited Trek anthology fiction. Uh, how did you yes. get started with that? And what's the
0: reward in editing as compared to writing? Um, The – well, I, I I had a background as an editor. I started out as an editor in the field before uh, I started writing, sure. and um, I was actually hired to, as I mentioned, when we developed the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series. The it was I developed it with John Ordover, who was one of the one of the editors at Simon and Schuster at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't have time to actually supervise a monthly series, so he hired me to do it freelance, and that sort of gave me the end in- to also pitch anthology ideas as well. Since they were doing them, um, you know, some of them, they, they'd already done things like uh, the Enterprise Logs Anthology and the Lies of Dax Anthology. Right. And, uh, and some others as well. And uh, I, did th- I did three Star Trek anthologies specifically. Two I pitched, one I was asked to do. Um, the one I was asked to do was the New Frontier Anthology, which was, it was the same situation as, as with the Corps of Engineers. It was, they wanted to do a short story anthology where other pe- people other than Peter David wrote New Frontier stories. Right uh peter peter was the one who was going to be supervising it all and approving it all but uh peter didn't have um they needed somebody who could actually do the nuts and bolts editing of the book the putting together of the book mm. as opposed to the more supervisory thing peter did um so the the two of us basically worked on that together with with me doing the the grunt work <laughs> on it. and uh you know assembling all all the authors and such um that was on a, that was on a very tight schedule which is another reason why they brought me in freelance to sure. do it the other two were ones that I that I just thought would be cool to do, and so I pitched them, and they went for it. Uh, the The tales of the, the tales of the Dominion War, and tales from the Captain's Table. The, the former, which uh, has, was a huge success, by the way, and and I still get I still get a royalty check for that every every six months. Not a big one, but um, but it's still it's well, you know, we got to divide it among all the contributors. But it's uh it's it's one that still people are interested in, and the idea of that anthology was what was the rest of the Star Trek universe doing during the Dominion War? Right um you know we 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 saw the dominion war the same way mass showed us the korean war um it was through the lens of a particular group of individuals in a particular place um and what i wanted to do was show the greater tapestry of the star trek universe and what was happening you know right. including dramatizing things like the brain attack on earth and the fall of beta Z, um stuff like that right so uh and, and, you know, like other stuff that was mentioned, like, uh, it was mentioned in the Star Trek Nemesis that Shinzon led a, uh, gr- uh Romulan troops right, during right. the Dimension War. So, you know, David Mack did that. I did the fall of Beta Z. um... <laughs> Both Dave Gallanter and Howard Weinstein tackled uh, the brain attack on Earth, and and so you know we 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 got to you know expand it out a little bit. Tales of the Captain Sable was a case where I wanted to do a sequel to a miniseries that uh, Simon and Schuster had done back in '98, which was which was called The Captain Sable, where it's it's this bar that sort of exists out of time and space, and that only ship captains can enter it, sure. and they can drink free as long as they tell at least one story. Sure, and. Since 98, there were a whole bunch of new captains that had been added to the Pantheon, whether it was on screen in the case of, like, Riker being promoted to Captain of the Titan um, or uh, the, the addition of Jonathan Archer with the debut of, of Enterprise. Uh, plus, in the novels, we, we added a bunch of characters as well. Um, you know, Captain Gold from the SCE, uh, Captain Clagg from the Klingon books I was doing. Uh, we'd also started up a Stargazer series, so we had an excuse to drag Picard in there and have him tell a Stargazer story. Right. Um Kieran O'Ree have been made into a captain, uh, as well as um, uh, Shelby from New Frontier. So we 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 basically took the opportunity to to add more captains to the list, as it were. So, um, yeah, I know it's fun. It's fun, you know, gathering the stories and and taking pitches from people and figuring out, you know, trying to to fit the needs of your theme, you know, and see what different people's approaches are to what you know, what the theme of the anthology is. Yeah. You did the unthinkable in
1: Tales of the Dominion War. You killed Mr. Hom. Yes, I did. He just wanted to drink all the I drinks. He wasn't hurting that, anybody. But...
0: <laughs> well, I, I, I wanted there to be a death. I wanted to be something, you know, a meaningful death there. Sure. And, you know, somebody we'd seen. And of course, he died protecting the family, which is what he did. Right. Um, and uh, I actually got to beat Carol Strike, and We were both uh, guests at a convention a couple of years oh, ago. Oh, neat. And, and and he had heard about it from someone else. And I told him, "Yeah, that was me." <laughs> um, before we go, he, was cool about it. And he, li- he liked the fact that 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 you know he died saving the life of of Lux on his kid. Sure, you know? sure. And and you know, like I said, I wanted the, the story is more meaningful if there are consequences to a character that we know. Um, you know, when I and I obviously couldn't kill Loxana, and especially since you know right. uh, already seen her uh, in the you know there the was a I sort of wrote it as a prequel to a to a novel that had been published called The Battle of Beta Z, in which Waxana led the resistance on Beta Z right, after, right. after the, after the fall. But it was also um, I wrote that story in uh, to the, uh, late two thousand three. Uh, and that was kind of the ni- the nine eleven kafarsa story I've been wanting to write since two thousand one because I, I live in New York as I said yeah. and I, I lived through nine uh, September eleventh living here, and um, and that was kind of you know it was it was a story I needed to write you know yeah and it's a testament to
1: Carol Strucken's performance as Mister Hum that a guy that barely says anything can provide that emotional depth you know when we lose that character
0: as LaForge said in one of the Lux on a Tray episodes he can't get a word in anyway but. <laughs>
1: uh before we go on i have to know the history of the chronic rift
0: it's uh <laughs> uh that started out as something me and some of my best friends from high school and college all did in the early 90s we debuted it actually in august of 1990 right it was uh we only really intended to do it for a few episodes it was something uh john drew who was the creator and, and executive producer and director of the of the the TV show, and who later revived it as a podcast in 2008, John wanted to, uh, for a long time, wanted to get into TV production, and he thought this would be a good way to sort of, you know, uh, sort of back-end resume stuffer, uh, and give him a chance to, you know, have experience working, you know, directing cameras and stuff like that. And it just kind of grew. Uh, We only intended to do a few episodes, us and some friends talking about some of our favorite nerdy things, (laughs) and we started, you know, we leveraged some... Contacts we had with with a few people in the field, uh, and that sort of snowballed from there. And we started getting you know real actual professional authors and editors and agents and stuff on the show. Sure. Um, and we did a hundred. We did about a hundred episodes over four years, uh, talking about all sorts of things. We did cool interviews. We did reviews, and uh, it was great. Um, we we had a wonderful time doing it. Um, it, it proved actually more useful for my career than it did for john in the end um because uh, it, it, it it was the, it was doing the chronic riff that i met john Betancourt. john Betancourt was the one who wound up hiring me to be his assistant at byron price which is which was my first real job in the science fiction field right um but uh but it was i mean it was it was great for all of us we all had a wonderful time doing it and then and John actually now uh, is is a high school teacher and he loves it. so oh, great. Uh, It's not like it's not like his life suffered. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. But uh, quite the opposite actually, and he's a phenomenal teacher. But um, uh, and then and then we brought it back as a podcast in two thousand eight. We haven't really been doing it much the last couple of years just because you know life. Although the Chronic Rift Network still does a whole bunch of different uh, pop culture podcasts in various stripes. Sure, absolutely. Um, um, but yeah, that that was that was just something we did for fun out of college, and it sort of grew. Uh, there was a period there in the early 90s where I would actually be recognized on the streets of Manhattan by people who watched the show. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, they got me a free ride on the Central Park Carousel once. Ooh.
1: Uh, well, it was all worth it then.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: Well, we're talking about the DS9 episode, Tacking into the Wind. As I said, it's the 22nd episode of the seventh season of DS9. It first aired on May 12th of 1999. It was written by Ronald D. Moore, who I won't waste time introducing. His reputation precedes him. <laughs> uh, and it was directed by Mike Vehar, who has directed over 30 episodes for the Modern Trek series' um, excepting discovery. Uh, he directed seven episodes of DS9 in total, with Tacking in the Wind being <clears throat> excuse me, his last episode for the show. He's been singled out by Ron Moore as his favorite director on the series, and he directed two other of Moore's scripts, "Darkness and the Light" and "Rocks and Shoals." No star date is given for this episode, but it's squarely in the year 2375, near the conclusion of the Dominion War. Keith, your assignment, if you can—and I know you can—is <laughs> to give us a
0: 25-word synopsis of "Tacking into the Wind." Uh, well, there's two. There's two storylines going That's on right. in "Tacking into the Wind." The, the first is um, involves the Klingons. Uh, they are the only ones who are able to. Resists the Dominions, or specifically the Breen's energy damping weapon. Uh, and Gowron has used this as an excuse to uh, pretty much wage the war all by himself, including some really insane strategies that are getting a lot of people killed, which is partly done to boost his, to, to undermine Martok's political position because he has become a very popular general. Um, the problem is this is hurting the war effort, and Worf feels he should be challenged for a rule, but Martok refuses to challenge a sitting chancellor in the middle of a war. Um, the irony of this being that it was Worf who was taking that position several years earlier during a Klingon Civil War, right. um, which saved Gowron's life at least once. The other plot involves also involves that same weapon, but in um, the um, the Cardassian underground that is being led by Damar and is being uh, coached, for lack of a better word, <laughs> by Kira uh with help from Odo and Garrick, uh, has an opportunity to get their hands on a Jem'Hadar ship that has the brain energy dampening weapon. And so they engage in this rather audacious plan to steal it. And things go horribly wrong because if things didn't go horribly wrong, you wouldn't want to watch a TV episode about it. Meanwhile, War finds himself in a position where he has to challenge a sitting uh, chancellor and um, challenges Gowron. And much wackiness ensues. Yeah, there's a lot going on.
1: As far as interesting facts go for this episode, there's quite a few, mostly related to the episode's place in this Dominion War storyline, and we'll dive into that in a bit, but here's some um, some light, fun facts. Uh, Kitty Swink, uh, actress and wife of Cork actor Armin Shimmerman, appears in this episode as the Vorda Luaran. Swink previously appeared in the series as Bajoran minister Roseanne in the second ep- season episode Sanctuary, and she never sh- shares a screen with her husband on DS9. Um, Cork isn't in this episode because Armin Shimmerman was filming the third season finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer at the time. Uh, Luarin doesn't make it out of this episode, but his, her character is involved in the invasion and occupation of Beta Zed, as depicted in your short story, Ceremony of Innocence is right. Drowned, and The Battle of Beta Zed by Susan Carney and Charlotte Douglas. Uh, Two regulars make their last appearances on the show in this episode. Robert O'Reilly as Gowron and John Vickery as Reset both go to their rewards, be they what they may. Um, And there's not a lot of light facts to be found uh, in the later later episodes of Deep Space Nine. Uh, Things get pretty grim. Uh, Ships worlds and friends are lost. And it's all a far cry from the original five-year mission of the USS Enterprise under Captain Kirk, I think a lot of hay has been made over whether Roddenberry and the producers of the original show would want stories like this told in their universe. But as somebody who has told a lot of stories in this universe, what do you think about the role of war and conflict in Star Trek storytelling?
0: Um, it's, I mean, I don't see that there's anything actively wrong with it the, uh, as long as the stories are good. And one, and one of the things I liked about the Dominion War arc is that it never soft peddled that war was a bad thing. Sure. Um, it didn't glorify war, and and war was something to be avoided at all costs, which goes back to the original series, you know, particularly uh, Balance of Terror and Errand of Mercy, the episodes that introduced uh, the Romulans and the Klingons. Both of those are about preventing war. Yeah. Or, you know, being embroiled in a war and trying to find a way out of it. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think that these, this particular storyline was still true to Roddenberry's Vision in as much as they are trying, they are still trying to keep the Federation's paradise afloat, even though they're in the middle of a war. I mean, the 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 Federation's ideals is what they're fighting for; it's what they're struggling for. Yeah, Um, and that's that's you know an important thing, and it's something they never. I don't think they ever really lost sight of, and and um, you know, I mean, part of the reason why they were they were able to do this is because of the, the way the nature of of television changing i mean the reason one of the reasons why there was never a protracted war on the original series is that every episode had to be standalone everyone everything had to be you know it had to end in those 48 minutes they had to tell the story yeah um that is no longer the case um you know i mean even even as as it is star trek was ahead of its time in a lot of ways in terms of of certain elements that would recur there were there were there were themes that were and character bits that were carried across more than one episode from the obvious, like having Harry Mudd come back um, to little things involving uh, Kirk Spock and McCoy uh, in particular, uh, just, you know, different aspects of their personality that were brought up later. Um, You know, Star Trek actually made, you know, like in Turnabout and Trudor, there were specific references to past episodes, which was very rare in the late sixties, you know? Um, So I, I, you know, it's, I, I think that, that the difference is really because of the way, Television storytelling has evolved, not really because of anything inherently wrong or bad about the way Star Trek is. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see it as a as a violation of anything. I think it's just a natural progression of you know, and and that, and that's true in Discovery now. Discovery is, you know, is a TV show that is being told in the way the TV shows are told now, just as <laughs> Star Trek was a TV show told the way they were told in '66. Yeah. Um, but the core, the heart of it is still the same. Um, the in particular, both storylines in this episode are about trying to make a society better than it's been. You know, they're both. We're talking about two societies that have been antagonistic in the past, um, in both the Klingons and the Cardassians, and we're talking about um, trying to find leaders who, in, in both cases, they're 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 nations that have kind of lost their way and are and need leaders to inspire them to become better than what they were uh martok in the case of the klingons damar in the case of the Cardassians. and in both cases it's uh members of our main cast uh Worf and cisco for uh martok and kira and garrick for damar who are trying to you know push them in the right direction um and 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 to get them to be the heroes that they don't even particularly want to be. What I particularly like about both Damar and Martok, neither of them particularly want to be leaders. Right. As opposed right. to, say, you know, uh, Gowron, who literally fought for the right to, right. to, to become the Chancellor. Martok doesn't want this. Right. Um, and Damar didn't want it either. Damar started out as, you know, second Cardassian on the left in, in a random episode with Dukat in it. And he grew into this, you know, he was thrust into the role of Leggett after Dukat went binky bonkers. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and even as recently as the beginning of the seventh season, he was trying to convince Dukat to come back because he he doesn't see himself as a leader. He sees himself, he was waiting for somebody to give him orders, and the only one giving him orders is Wayun. and Wayun keeps giving him orders that, he, that make him just want to go get drunk some more. Right. Um, and finally, you know, he takes matters into his own hands he forms the resistance he asks the federation for help and then here he has to kill one of his oldest friends because as he sa- as he himself puts it you know his Cardassia is gone and it's not coming back um and in the case of of the Klingon plotline this this in particular the Ezri es- gives Worf a speech one of the things i love about that speech is that it's a speech that only Ezri dax could have given oh sure um the the in general in pretty much all the other 24 episodes of, of season seven, I had very little use for the Ezra Dax character. She was being, she wasn't very well formed. Nicole DeBoer did the best she could, but she was, you know, it, it felt like the producers were trying very hard to, to slam her into the ensemble. And the problem is there were so many other things going on that it, it didn't always work. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the character is very well served by the spotlight episode she had either. Having said that, this episode almost by itself justified the character's existence because Ezri, by her very nature, has the knowledge about the Klingon Empire that Jadzia had and that Kurzon had, but doesn't have the emotional ties that they did. Right? Um, you know, she doesn't have Kurzon's deep affection for Korkang and Kola and and his experiences, you know, basically being an ambassador to them. Or, you know, Jadzia's similar friendships and and her relationship with Worf and and her continued interest in in Klingon culture she's got an outsider's perspective with an insider's knowledge right and it's because of that that she can say what she says to Worf she can say that you know the Klingon empire is corrupt and we've seen that we've been, we have seen that since <laughs> since the father back in 1990 yeah. you know third season of next generation when uh the high council basically conspired to accuse Worf's and kern's father of a crime simply for political expediency because the person who really did it is the father of somebody on the high council and that would send the empire into into chaos right which is exactly the kind of you know thing a corrupt government does um it was necessary but um but and since then everything we've seen since then has been compromises you know the political expediency over honor um whether it's you know Uh, Duress' sisters trying to take over in Redemption, whether it's Gowron rewriting Klingon history in uh, (laughs) in Unification, uh, and all the way up to Gowron basically engaging in multiple idiotic campaigns for the express purpose of making Martok look bad so he himself will look better. Right. Uh, and <laughs> don't don't say anything bad about Gauron now. Uh, I think that uh,
1: Gauron might be my favorite Klingon character outside of maybe Krug. Um, well, he's
0: a great character. Oh, yeah, but he's, that, that doesn't change the fact that he's still, oh, you know. Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, he's absolutely not a good chancellor and he's basically throwing yeah. away the war to humiliate somebody that he sees as his yeah. rival. But but that's that's what a classic old school Klingon would do. I mean, he's the product of the society that made him, you know, when he started out. It um, when Worf backed him for Chancellor as an outsider, and he's been taking yeah. what he wants and showing up his power since day one, and to me, in mm-hmm. that, he's the, the quintessential Klingon. Not in the sense of honor, surely, in the way that Worf and Martok are, but as far as being a conqueror who lives by his will and has the strength and cunning to back
0: it up, I mean, he's a Klingon's Klingon. And, and you know, for that matter, you know, to look at the other plot line, Roussad is a Cardassian's Cardassian, but oh, yeah. that's... But in both cases, it's a type of, you know, their their culture that is no longer tenable in the Klingon's case if they're going to continue to be major players and allies of the Federation, and in the Cardassian's case, if they're actually just going to survive as a people. Yeah. Um they 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 these are both nations that need to look forward rather than backward. Um yes, Gowron is an old school Klingon, but that's that's a Klingon of a type that yes, we saw in the original series, and in the original series movies that we're seeing now in Discovery, but that's that's not a type of Klingon that's tenable anymore if they're gonna continue in in the twenty fourth century and the political landscape in the way it is, if they have to stay united against the Dominion and so on. Yeah. So um and, and, and again what I love is about this episode in particular is that it picks Everything. I mean, I would list this as one of the absolute best episodes of any Star Trek series. But unlike most of the other ones that I would put on such a list, this is one I wouldn't just hand to somebody to watch without any context. <laughs> well, sure. Because so much of it, what what makes it great is that it builds on, like I said, ten years worth of storylines on two different TV shows. Yeah. Um. The the you know what happens with Kira and Rassat and Damar and Garrick builds on so much that we've gotten all going all the way back to the introduction of the Bajorians and Ensign Roe on next gen, uh, and seen constantly as part of the the backstory on deep space nine. And, you know, the Klingon political arc of, of, you know, Worf constantly having to make compromises in order to basically sacrifices to his own honor in order to expedite political expediency in the Klingon empire. And this is him finally saying the hell with that. Oh yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, you know, that he's he's finally doing something that will actually restore honor to the Empire right. rather than simply keep it from looking bad. Yeah,
1: the, the, um, the good soldier thing doesn't work if the general's nuts. Exactly, yeah. As somebody, and, as somebody who's written extensively for the Klingon side of the universe, what do you think about the fact that Worf has been kind of around for all these major shifts in Klingon politics? Like, Worf's kind of the Lee Atwater of, like, the Klingon Empire. <laughs>
0: i never thought of that particular specific analogy but yeah it's it's interesting that that he's well i mean he has he's in a unique position because he has that like what i said about Ezri, about having the 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 knowledge without the um direct emotional experience warf has never actually lived in the kleon empire except for maybe you know a few weeks uh between episodes of between parts one and two of redemption when he was serving uh in the Klingon Defense Force. Right. Aside from that, he's never really been part of the Empire, but he has always lived up. He's always tried desperately to be the ideal Klingon, um, and and part of the why he's been able to is because he is separated from the reality of it and the compromises that are necessary in the real world. He can be an ideal Klingon, and that puts him in a unique position to to effect change. Excuse me. Um, I mean, yes, it's a little little ridiculous that he was involved in the installation of each of the last two chancellors, not to mention the return of the emperor. Right. Um, but uh, but by the same token, you know, he was specifically chosen as the person to see Kalis because he was a useful political tool for uh, Koroth and the other clerics to use yeah. to bring Kalis back. So um, it's it's. It's an interesting uh, notion. I'm, I'm 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 disappointed in a lot of ways that Nemesis just sort of brought him back into Starfleet because I love the way DS9 left him as the Klingon ambassador to the the Federation ambassador to the Klingon Empire because right. that was such a perfect next step for him. Yeah. Um, in fact, I wrote several novels that took place with him as the Federation ambassador, partly because um, I just I it's an obvious next step for him with everything he's done. And everything he's been involved with politically with the Klingon Empire, right um, and
1: uh, so yeah, if he had just uh, if he had died on Kidmer, all of this would be totally different <laughs> It'd be a totally different yeah. empire uh you're clearly on board with the Klingons characters and their setting. Do you think a Klingon focused TV show could work
0: maybe i one of the reasons why I think it would be a tough sell is and, and it's less of an issue now, but it would be very expensive um, I'm sure. And, and that that's always been that's always been one of the digs against it uh, for a long time having said that you know given how much money they're obviously spending each week on discovery I don't think that's so much of a factor anymore as it used to be um, and and also you know just te- the technology and the makeup has improved to the point where it's less expensive to do it so um, uh, I think it's it's possible uh, I don't know I think there's a lot of elements of the Star Trek universe that I think would be good fodder for you know a six-episode miniseries or a, or a twelve-episode miniseries. Um, I'm not. I don't know if it would necessarily be sustainable for an entire series. Um, I think. I think just for 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 an ongoing developing series, I think the basic model of following a Starfleet crew around uh, is still the best uh, model for for a long-term Star Trek storyline. Um, Having said that, uh, you know, I I'd, I'd love to see it. <laughs> sure. Uh, I think I think there are lots of possibilities. I mean, I God knows I've written enough stories that, that have focused on the Klingons that I I think there's there's meat there. Yeah. But
1: um We're kinda of getting half of a Klingon show with Discovery. There's a lot of Klingon focused content there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh have you been enjoying Discovery? You're watching it?
0: Yeah. Um it's it's got some flaws. Um but it's I'm in general, very engaged by the storyline. I like the fact that the main character isn't the captain. Yeah. Sure. Um, that, that we're actually focusing on, you know, a low, a low level character. In fact, you can't get much lower than where, uh, Burnham is at this point. Um, and, and I like that it's, it's a different type of focus. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I like the characters. I'm interested in what's going to, in the storyline and what's going to happen. Um, you know, it's it's not perfect. Uh, you can sort of there's a lot of people involved in the making of this show. I mean, the 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 number of people whose title is executive producer on this show is is about, you know, <laughs> 50 names long. Yeah. And 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 it feel and it feel like there, there's too many people, you know, too many cooks sometimes. Um, but overall, I think it's 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 a good show. It's a good solid show. I'm I'm on tenterhooks waiting to see what's going to happen next. Um, I think in 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 particular um, the acting has been superb so Nico Martin Green and Doug Jones and Jason Isaacs uh, in particular have all been brilliant um and the supporting cast is very strong it's just it's it's a good show it um I don't think it's a great show yet but then again I didn't I didn't think the 9 was a great show in its first season either you know that turned out okay yeah you know it's funny i I when I reviewed the first episode, the first two episodes, cause they, they are simultaneously. I, I reviewed the first two episodes of discovery for com, and, and I opened it, um, with a paragraph that, um, you know, basically saying, so, so I, I, I'd, I'd like to talk about a, a, a Star Trek show that, uh, people had to pay for where previously they saw it for free in which the Klingon makeup has been redesigned without, and the, uh, Starfleet characters have different uniforms, all with absolutely no explanation, uh, which has a much bigger budget than what we're used to from Star Trek, and uh, which has lots of behind-the-scenes turmoil, and in which the character who was raised on Vulcan is going through some emotional turmoil. I am, of course, talking about Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. Yeah, right. Nothing changes, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. And, and for that matter, you know, I I remember 1987 when there were lots of Star Trek fans who were insistent that you can't do Star Trek without Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And what are they doing, putting this bald British captain up and trying to pretend like he's a Star Trek captain? Right. Um, and you know that turned out okay too. Um, you know, I and 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 to to get back to to Deep Space Nine in particular, Deep Space Nine did something very important for the franchise which is expand the universe. Up until 1993, Star Trek meant these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Yeah. Uh, it was Kirk's Enterprise. It could be Picard's Enterprise. It could be, if you wanted to stretch it, it could be Pike's Enterprise or Garrett's Enterprise. But it was still the Enterprise. With Deep Space Nine, it's, it's expanded to that entire universe, and I think that's, that's a great boon for storytelling. It means you can do things like Discovery. It means you can do Voyager or Enterprise or, or Deep Space Nine or the Starfleet Corps of Engineers or the Titan or... You know, all the all the weird ass stuff we've done in the in the books and the comics over the last twenty years. Sure. Um, you know, one, I mean, again, one of the best things that that one of the best moons for Star Trek storytelling in 1997 was the debut of New Frontier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Up until then, Star Trek fiction had to feature one of had to tie into an existing TV show. That was that was the rule. Yeah. Um. Uh. John Ordover at Simon and Schuster wanted to do an adventure where the reset button was dismantled. Uh, that where they could do something with new characters. Uh, And what's especially funny is the licensing person at, uh, it was Paramount at the time who did the approvals. Now it's CBS because they're all one big corporate whatever. But um, the licensing person there wrote a very lengthy memo explaining why she thought this wouldn't succeed, but she approved it anyway because she figured, you never know, I could be wrong. And turns out she was wrong. It was hugely successful. (laughs) Um, and And that opened the door to do all sorts of other cool things. You know, we've done. You know, we had the Stargazer series, the the Gorkon series that I did. The, um, the I mentioned the Corps of Engineers, the Vanguard series that uh, Dave Mack, Dayton Warden, and Kevin Dilmore did, uh, and then the Seekers series that followed. Um, you know, we could do things like articles of the Federation, like Section Thirty-One, like you know, all all sorts of different stories we could tell. Yeah. Um, and that's just that just adds to the tapestry of the universe.
1: Sure. Uh, talking about Discovery, you know, it's, it's a non-network show, so they've got uh, a little more latitude in their content. Um, the war storyline on DS9 is very intense. I'm not a person that thinks that you need overt adult elements to elevate something, but I do feel like an episode or a series of episodes like this is where you could put some colorful metaphors, for instance, like if it was a cable <laughs> show. Um, the, scene where Cira, uh, the, the scene where Kira makes a pretzel out of her set felt like some choice profanity would have fit right in there what do you think about the uh the elements or the uh, more adult elements of discovery so far
0: i i don't have a problem with it i mean the, the people compl- i've heard people complain about it that they yeah you know, as if they want their star trek to be pure who <laughs> seem to forget that in the late 60s william wirthice was constantly pushing the envelope of how much skin could be shown on screen right. um the use of hell at the end of the city on the edge of forever was even more controversial in 67 than um, the use of the F word was on Discovery uh, more recently. Right. Uh, you know the the and and Star Trek handled has tackled adult themes its entire existence. Oh, certainly. You know, I mean, some of the earliest episodes were were about things like you know aliens kidnapping humans so they could you know be fruitful and multiply as they were in the menagerie and right. you know the introduction of Harry Mudd as a space pimp <laughs> yeah. who was wiving settlers. I mean, come on, the the adult adult and and you know. Things like, you know, their, their Vietnam War analogies and the nuclear war analogies and the, the, you know, addressing things like overpopulation and and the evils of of war and conflict and stuff. Right. These are all pretty adult themes. <laughs> it's, it's it's Star Trek has always pushed the envelope of of how much they can do. Yeah. Uh, you know, in particular they did uh you know in the original series, um, and you know, Deep Space Nine. I I realized this when I when I did my rewatch of Far Beyond the Stars. Team Space Nine had an African American lead. This is still vanishingly rare yeah. on genre television. Most, pretty much every lead and every genre tele- television show you can think of, the lead is a white person. Yeah. Um, the the only other exception that I could really think of prior to Discovery is um, uh, Battlestar Galactica, uh, in 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 Admiral Adama played by Edward James Olmos, right. and that's it. Yeah, you know every every. You know, Deep Space Nine not only was groundbreaking, you know, 25 years ago, but here we are, 25 years later, and it's still hard to find another, you know, person of color in the lead of a science fiction uh, or fantasy show. Sure. Um, you know, it's, uh, push, pushing the envelope is what Star Trek does, um, at least when it's at its best, and and I don't see any problem with Discovery doing it either. I I'd have a bigger issue with it if it wasn't part of the story, but it is. It has been, you know. Yeah. The the I mean, people have also pointed out the, the brief flash of Klingon boobage uh, oh, right. in in the in Tyler's uh, PTSD flashback, right. but um, you know, and that's but that's you know that's what he went through, or at least what he's remembering. Yeah, um, you know, and, and, and the profanity I think was one of the funniest scenes in all. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, On the subject of
1: profanity, uh, what do you think of the news that Quentin Tarantino might be involved in developing a Trek project?
0: I don't know. I mean <laughs> I I I be I'd I'd go see it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean he's he's enough of he's enough of a nerd that I think he would do right by it. Yeah. Um uh I'm not sure how I mean, he might get a little overindulgent just because he gets overindulgent about every genre he dabbles in. Um you know, I mean I I I'm I'm not so much worried that he'll turn it into, you know, a typical Quentin Tarantino movie. I'm, I'm more worried that his excesses in general, his filmmaking excesses might not get reined in because that's been my biggest issue with most of his more recent movies is that his, you know, Kill, Kill Bill, for example, would have made one really great movie instead of two overlong, overstuffed, endless movies. Sure. <laughs> um, so that's what I'm more worried about. Um Having said that, uh, CBS and Paramount are pretty protective of Star Trek at this point, so I think uh, that that it could work. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's it's a long way off from actually happening if it's even going to happen. Um, the more the more I learn about how movies are made, the more amazed I am that any movie ever gets made. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of hurdles they have to jump before this is going to happen.
1: Yeah, so. that's true. Uh, getting back to the episode, I wanted to make sure that we didn't neglect talking about the other plot line, the non-Klingon one, the one with Kira and Damar. Um, Kira is on fire in this episode, uh, played yes. played amazingly, as usual, by Nana Visitor. And she's come a long way over the series, but she's basically back to where she started. She's blowing things up as part of her resistance. Um, in fact, right at the start of the episode, she's yelling at Rassat because he's not blowing things up good enough. You know, you, you're making things <laughs> go wrong wrong.
0: What I particularly like about Kira in this episode in particular is, is how effortlessly competent she is. Yeah. Um, not to a degree that it's like showing off or anything, but she's just, she's doing what needs to get done. Um, she, and and in particular, when everything goes to hell on the Hadar ship, she's not throwing up her hands and going, oh my god, we're doomed. She's immediately coming up with a plan to fix it and to make it better and to, you know, and to salvage it. Yeah. You know she's always thinking ahead to the next thing she and and coming up with ways of doing things and yelling at people when they're not coming along with her fast enough right um and I love that I love that you know because that's how she survived in the resistance for so long was was the fact that she was able to do that yeah uh, if she hadn't, she wouldn't have survived right um and And I love that. I mean, one of the reasons why this is one one of my favorite episodes, in addition to me thinking it's one of their best, is that my two favorite characters in the Star Trek pantheon are Worf and Kira. Um, And this is a great episode. This is obviously, you know, one of the best episodes for both of them. Um, I mean, one of the absolute best moments, even if I didn't like the rest of the episode, I would have loved this scene, when when Damar finds out that his wife and kids have been killed. Yeah. And he says, you know, what kind of state gives the order to, you know, kill an entire family? And Kira just looks at him and says... Yeah, Damar, What kind of people do? You? <laughs> oh, horrible, yeah. <laughs> and it's just such a great moment. Yeah. You know, um I mean that that's as Garrick says a few minutes later, this is that that was the smack in the face Damar needed. Right.
1: Um and even yeah, you know, he needed to
0: realize <laughs> just what was going on there. And Kira is the one in the best position to make him aware of it just as and this is why, you know, I love the parallel plot structure here. You know, Kira basically serves the same role for Demar that Dax does for Worf. Yeah. You know, putting him on to to um to challenge Martok, just as as Kira is saying that is what brings DeMar along to the point where he kills Rusat rather than jeopardize um Cardassia's future. Right.
1: Um They're they're both they're Lady Macbething, but Lady Macbething mm-hmm. in a good way. Yes. And yes. I also like how after Kira, you know, drops off that truth bomb on Damar and he runs out, she still she is racked with conflicting emotions, you know, about well it was a nasty thing it to say. It was a horrible thing to say. That's true.
0: <laughs> it was absolutely the right thing to oh, say. Yeah. It was still kinda of mean. But I, I <laughs> but Matt did just lose his wife and kids for crying That's out. True.
1: I, I do I love but I love the fact that maybe I'm putting like too much on this that doesn't need to be there, but I love the fact that yeah. she is, you know, capable and, and she's emotionally complex and there's mm-hmm. no it has nothing to do with her being a woman. Do you know what I mean? Like I could see uh-huh. like a badass male character being like, yeah, we'll screw you and your family and just keeps moving. Or you could also yeah. write it as that character being like, wow, that was not a cool thing to say. And Kira is just written and she, as she has been for most of the series as just a competent character who has emotional depth and it has nothing to do with her being a girl or anything like that.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's telling that, uh, um, of, a uh, of the of the Star Trek shows the DS9 is the one that most often passes the Bechdel test of, of oh, yeah. female characters talking to each other not about a man and it's usually Kira and Dax yeah. but um it's uh, Kira and Dax are such great characters both of them yeah. and um you know, I mean, I, I, I'm less impressed with Ezreal, though. Uh, again, I, I don't, I don't really blame anybody for that. That was, that was, that was, that was something that was influenced by external circumstances that no one could control, except maybe Terry Farrell when she decided not to re-up. But mm. um, those two characters were both really beautifully done, um, and again, something that is vanished is still irritatingly rare. Although you know, we're one, it's one of the things I like about Discovery as well is that we're we're seeing, you know, I, I. I it's it's frustrating it's funny it's like i'm watching it and i'm thinking yes this is great but i really wanted more michelle Yeoh. <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> and, and, and not just michelle not just because i am an unrepentant michelle Yeoh fan goober which i am but uh <laughs> but also i like the character of georgie and 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 i really wish we get to see more of her and i'm really glad actually that the the approach that simon and schuster is taking is that the the discovery novels they're doing are prequels sure um in which and both both the novels that have been announced so far, uh, Dave Max, one that's out, and Dayton Ward's that's coming, both are Georgeu heavy, um, yeah. which which pleases me um, not, I know James Swallow is doing one. I'm not sure um, what the I, I don't I don't know one way or the other what, what he's doing yeah. uh, in terms of plot, but um, but I think that that's that's a great way to go because she's such a wonderful character and it's just it's frustrating that we're not going to get to see more of her.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, well, never say never. Uh, you, you never know.
0: Well, except in flashback, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, Kira, And yeah, that doesn't preclude the possibility of seeing more of her.
1: That's true. That's true. <laughs> Kira and Odo have always had a complicated relationship, and I really love the scene uh, in in this episode between Kira and Garrick where he's telling her how sick Odo is, and she's yeah. like, I, yeah, you know, and... I know, but he wants to go with dignity, and yeah. I'm going to give it to him. And, I mean, these are some stoic folks here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I, in the abstract, I do not like the Kira-Odo relationship. I thought it was a mistake from a writing perspective. Yeah. Um, and I still think it was, I think they worked better as friends, but the visitor and Rene Auberjonois sold me on that relationship every time they were on screen together. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was definitely a triumph of, of acting chemistry over writing in this case. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and this was one of the episodes where the writing lived up to it. Um, because that, I mean, yeah, that was a perfect summary of their relationship is that, you know, Odo's like, I don't want her to see me like this. And Kara's like, I know he doesn't want me to see him like this. So I'll <laughs> pretend you don't know. Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, as far as uh, great character moments, I also like how Cisco basically tells Worf in so many words, like fix this Gauron problem, do whatever you have to do. And he stops. Who
0: will, who will rid me of this troublesome pre- Yeah. And he yes. stops,
1: he um, stops just short of making a throat slicing gesture or pretending that he's got a noose around his neck. Like, Ugh, uh, you know, this is, this is post pale moonlight Cisco. He's like, Get it done. We got a mad dog that needs mm-hmm. to be put
0: down. Yeah, that was, and yeah, that was, yeah, that was very much a post in the pale moonlight version of of Cisco. Yeah, um, but uh, but he was, you know, I mean, the, you know, one of the reasons why he did what he did in the pale moonlight is he's tired of reading casualty figures. Right. You
1: know? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, it, is there a, a moment or a character that stood out for you
0: um, that you haven't mentioned yet in this episode? Um. <sighs> I think the my, my my two favorite moments in the episode are are ones I've already mentioned. One one was Kira's smacking Damar upside the head um yeah. after, you know about how, you know, what kind of state gives those orders. Well, gee. <laughs> let me see if I can think of one. And 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 Ezri's conversation with, with Worf. Yeah. Um you know, basically summing up the last ten years worth of Klingon stories. Right, yeah. Right. Um you know, and 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 I, and I really like that. Um, I, 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 I like the way, just in general, that, that Worf in particular has evolved. Because, you know, I mentioned when I was summing it up, he was confronted with the same thing in Redemption when somebody challenged Galran. And he was the one saying what Martok said was, that we're in the middle of a war, you can't challenge a sitting council, chancellor during that. yeah um, But he's, he's evolved to the point where he realizes that the spirit of tradition is more important than the letter of it. Right. Letter of it. Yes. Martok's right. And Worf was right back then. You shouldn't, you know, in the middle of a war, you can't go around removing the leader in the middle of that. <laughs> right. Um, and yet <laughs> it really was necessary for, you know, the good of everybody. Yeah.
1: So. I also like after he defeats Gowron, they come out and put the James Brown cloak on him. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of stylish. Um, as we uh, wrap up here, did you have any uh, sort of last thoughts about the episode?
0: Uh, I just just that I think it was it was beautifully written um you know two two storylines one other thing that that I didn't mention is that um one of the things I also liked about it is it took advantage of the fact that it was part of the big nine episode story arc that ended the season starting with penumbra going all the way through to what you leave behind right. and what I liked was that they set up most of this in when it when it rains the previous episode they set up Kira working with the resistance they set up Rusat as an as an antagonistic figure yeah. and they set up the fact that Gowron had taken over uh, running the day-to-day of the war from Martok. And by doing that, it gave this episode room to breathe. They didn't have to establish any of that. That was already there. So they could just jump right in to, you know, Gowron being nuts and Rusat being an irritant uh, without having to take the time to set it up and just jump right into the story. Which I which I really appreciated. I thought that was that was that was very nicely done and a good use of the fact that they're part of a bigger storyline to make this individual story much stronger.
1: Yeah. Let's talk My Space Dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why?
0: <laughs> um I'm going to cheat and say Captain David Gold of the Starfleet Corps of Engineers Ooh, ship USS Da Vinci, okay. which uh, I worked on in the Corps of Engineers series. because sure. Because yeah, uh, he's basically Colonel Potter from M.A.S.H., only Jewish. Um, <laughs> okay. That's that's basically – that's how I told everybody to write him when I was editing the series. Uh, and he rapidly became my favorite captain, even though he wasn't actually the main character. The main character was Sonia Gomez from the uh, right. N- Next Gen episode, q who She was the first officer and leader of the Corps of Engineers team, so she was kind of the star. But um, – in in terms of the on-screen captains i would have a hell of a time choosing among kirk picard and sisko because i love all three of them for completely different reasons yeah. um uh, i actually rewatching the i would have uh, 2 years ago i would have said either picard or sisko but rewatching the original series has given me a better appreciation of the kirk of the tv show in particular yeah. um the kirk of the movies was kind of an asshole but um <laughs> But the, the Kirk of the TV show was, was a great captain and an admirable character. I think, um, I, think, I think being promoted really just turned Kirk into a jerk in, in motion picture, and he never really recovered from it.
1: But, um, <laughs> uh, now that we've uh, reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in?
0: Um, one of the science labs. They tend not to get blown up. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, right. Or stellar cartography. They have cool graphics.
1: Enson de DeCandido, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online?
0: Uh, if they go to decandido.net, that's sort of a link dump for, for where you can find me online. That has links to my blog, my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, uh, the podcast that I do when I remember to do it, which it's been a while. <laughs> um, also, I have a Patreon set up where, uh, where you can uh, get nifty writings from me uh i also still contribute regularly to com, and currently besides reviewing discovery i'm also doing a rewatch of uh superhero movies oh, neat. that are based on comic books um and again if you go to decandido.net there's links to all that stuff as well as an email link and links to amazon where you can find my books and all sorts of other
1: sure things. and where can people find your new book when it comes out
0: uh Furnace sealed will be available from all the usual online book dealers and and possibly some brick and mortar stores but definitely from the from like amazonbn.com Kobo, all those guys. It'll be published by Wordfire Press, hopefully sometime by the summer, I'm hoping for. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, coming out sometime in the first half of this year will be the next uh, Precinct novel, Mermaid Precinct.
1: Oh, awesome. Uh, okay.
0: Yeah. I'm uh, going to be working on that and uh, some other cool stuff in the pipeline as well. So. Great. Well, thanks again for joining me. Thank you for having me, Aaron. I, I had a good time. Me too. We're signing off until the next mission,
1: Hailing Frequencies Closed. <laughs>